0: I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Every now and then, we produce an episode that has so many layers and implications to it that it sits in my mind long after the recording's over. This is one of them. In one sense, this is the inspiring story of Rodrigo Garcia, who as a first generation Mexican American from the south side of Chicago has dedicated himself to a record of public service from the Marines to his current role as deputy state treasurer and chief investment officer for the Illinois state treasury. In another, it's the story of the Illinois state treasury itself and its work over the last five years to embed sustainability factors and now expand those efforts by improving access to capital to address the disproportional socioeconomic impacts of the pandemic. And third, it's about the collision course in essentially contradictory regulatory interpretations for how ESG factors should be considered. That holds true not only between the U.S. Department of Labor's recently proposed rules on corporate pension plans and progressive states like Illinois, but also between the opposing approaches of the U.S. and European Union's own sustainable finance policy agenda. So it's a real privilege to have my next guest, Rodrigo Garcia, on the show. As Deputy State Treasurer and Chief Investment Officer for the Illinois State Treasury, Rodrigo directs the Treasury's $32 billion investment portfolio, $300 billion in related banking operations and financial services, and a $4 billion agency budget and financial reporting unit. Rodrigo was previously the director of the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs and a member of the Illinois Cabinet. He's worked for Morgan Stanley and the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He's also an adjunct professor at Northwestern University, an Aspen Global Fellow, and recent TEDx speaker. Welcome to the podcast, Rodrigo. It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule.
1: Hello. It's my pleasure to be here. and look forward to having a thought-provoking discussion this afternoon. And for everyone listening from around the world, welcome. And hopefully, uh, we'll be able to provide a little bit of insight and perspective in terms of how we are viewing the world here in our neck of the woods.
0: Perfect. (laughs) That's a great way to start. Um, before we get into a bunch of the questions, I do want to start out with your personal and professional arc. So can you talk about that progression in the context of your public service? I guess what I mean is, how did you start out as a, as a U.S. Marine? How did that follow, uh, with finance, a political appointment in the Illinois cabinet and ultimately your current role at the Illinois State Treasury?
1: Well, uh, well, thank you very much, uh, for that. And, you know, ultimately the journey started, uh, probably about four to five decades ago. And what I mean by that is the journey started with my parents. You know, my parents immigrated, uh, here to the United States, uh, in the 1970s. And they did it without, uh, proper legal status, which means that, My father was deported twice before, and back in the 70s and early 80s, before he gained legal status. uh, My mother was fortunately never uh, deported, which was great because she stayed here uh, uh, in the homestead while both my older brother, my younger sister, and and my younger brother became older. And so as my father tried to make his way back from Mexico, ultimately provided some level of stability. Now, why do I say that that's really where the journey started? Well, because it is those early experiences, both those that were uh, taught to me uh, by my parents in terms of the value of hard work, the value of perseverance, the value of overcoming adversity, combined with my own early experiences uh, growing up in the rough and tumble parts of Chicago, which is the third largest city here in the U.S., uh, really, uh, opened my eyes to what it meant to, you know, live and grow up in poverty what it means when there is a lack of opportunity especially for those uh, from low income communities and really taught me the value of you know what it means to have not only the work ethic but what happens when opportunity uh, or ladders of economic opportunity are extended and so the united states military uh, provided not only an ability to gain uh, experience, uh, and an ability to, um, you know, to be able to travel around the world and be subjected to many of, the, uh, of the you know, life experiences that you wouldn't otherwise receive, but also uh, do it in a way that allowed for support, financial support for college, as well as be able to, I would say, kind of serve uh, the country. And, and, and yes, I, I say it from a patriotic sense, but I also say it from a way of uh, being able to give back uh, to society, just like like you know this kind of this whole notion of a social contract between society and the individuals, you give back uh, to society just as society gives to you in a number of ways. So that is really kind of the precipice that that really created a foundation that I have built uh, ultimately. You know the various experiences in my professional career, but that in itself wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the experiences that that I forged early on uh growing up in in you know, the mean streets of Chicago, Illinois, and in a and not necessarily something uh, you know perhaps for this podcast, but I would tell you that uh you know, growing up among street gangs, among crime, but also the richness of the culture, the richness of family the tightness of those bonds really uh, left a a lasting mark uh, because, you know, one day it would be me and my father in our 1964 uh, red Ford pickup truck picking up uh, scrap metal. And then in the same day, we would be pulled over by a local uh, police department who may not uh, have welcomed uh, people of color in their community. And the next day I would be, you know, walking from home from school and, I would be having a great, uh, uh, you know, say a conversation with friends. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, being searched in the back of the car uh, because you are uh, some you know, people of color who are happen to be in their teenage years uh, that happens to be in a, you know, in a gang-ridden community. And so ultimately, you know, those experiences uh, made me who I am and they gave me lots of joy, but unfortunately they also gave me lots of, uh, you know, pain and lots of uh, anger.
0: The time with the Marines, I mean, how did that continue to shape or reshape your worldview? And I guess I'm wondering, to what degree did it sort of sensitize you in your tours through Iraq and Afghanistan to social issues, forced migration or sort of the importance of norms and institutions and and rule of law? Did that affect you?
1: Yes, it did immensely. For me, uh, in my service, it was a sense of duty. Uh, to neighbor it was a sense of duty for others and then and, and and the second uh side of that coin is you know the experiences that I did see you know i you know there was issues of water scarcity uh issues of you know forced migration, there was issues of uh terrorism uh you know terrorism is yeah you know, obviously can be a very broad and broad i'm talking about terrorism where people were uh uh not given the opportunity to say. For, uh you know free uh ex to exercise free religion free speech uh the ability to have economic opportunity uh deprived of human rights and so it is you know it was many of those experiences overseas in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in many other parts uh, around the world that I also did serve in human- in humanitarian uh, purposes that gave me a on the ground look that the issues of sustainability, the issues of governance, the issues of of human rights and human capital are not just issues that tend to impact, uh, uh, you know, uh, communities here in the U.S., But they are interconnected around the world uh, and impact communities in very different ways, some with larger magnitude, some with uh, with a very acute impact in their own uh, daily livelihoods. Uh, But yes, um, it did color uh, my worldview. It did change my perspective overall.
0: And so how did that wrap then into um, Illinois State Public Service?
1: A number of years ago. Uh, while I was working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, I became a founding member of this organization called uh, Student Veterans of America, Uh, and it's a young organization. Today is about uh, 11 years old, uh, but it has played a pivotal role in advancing uh, the affairs of military veterans and their families as they're coming home, uh, from either military service or any other type of, um, deployment overseas. And I say that because it was my involvement with that organization that really introduced me to, uh, you know, the, the halls of you know federal and state government and so the the jump was as i became as, as i became much more involved i was an asked join the Illinois cabinet or to be uh, in this case was to take a lead role in military veteran affairs uh, for the residents of the state of Illinois uh, where we have nearly 1 million uh, veterans who call the state of Illinois home and it was that transition that really opened my eyes uh to the Impact of public policy, not just from uh, uh, a theoretical framework, but much more from a, a tactical and tangible uh, impact. And from there is where yeah, ultimately my heart and and my background comes from finance. But what it did, it, it once it provided me that worldview. Then I was able to marry that up with my financial background, which ultimately landed me at the Illinois State Treasury, which for many uh, folks who may not be familiar, you know, the Treasury uh, uh is... I want to say it's the fifth uh, or the state of it. So I'm at the treasurer for the state of Illinois, which is the fifth largest state in the state of the uh, here in the union or in the United States of America. And if it was its own country, it would be the 19th largest uh, uh, economy in the world. And so that's kind of how I made that jump. Uh, It was always it was finance. Then it was public policy. And then now today it's finance and public policy. And where I'm able to marry that uh, experience up uh, very uniquely, I might say. And we'll get a little bit into, you know, a little bit of the dynamics, uh, in through this conversation, I would hope.
0: Got it. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really impressive journey. Um, so let's talk about the Illinois State Treasury. In my mind, it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's somewhat of an outlier in, in, the, in a couple of important aspects. I, I've heard you talk in the past about, Starting this journey around sustainable finance back in 2015. Um, and over that time, then becoming a signatory of the principles for responsible investment, the first treasury in the U.S. to become one in 2018. And I think a lot of credit is due to the state of Illinois for this because I think it's quite rare. Illinois then signed into law the sustainable investing act, which became effective on January the first, 2020, which encourages states and local governments that manage public funds to integrate sustainability factors or ESG, environmental, social and governance factors into their policies and decision making. So, you know, when you think about the theory of change, I guess what I'm asking is how did, how did that happen? Um, You know, was it a cultural issue? Um, Was treasurer Michael Frerichs, you know, uh, sort of driving this from the outset? I'm wondering how this evolved and how you maintain that momentum.
1: So for us, It really was based on a structured framework that is needed or was needed to facilitate change in such deeply rooted issues. So what exactly does that mean? Well, for us, it is leadership starts at the top. It is philosophy. It is a change in the mindset. It is policies and processes. It's the cultural competency uh, amongst our uh, staff and our, amongst our team members, it is ingenuity. It is you know kind of this thinking outside the box. It is accountability. You know the measurement and evaluation. And so all of these are critical dimensions needed to address the realities uh, of sustainability and its impact on our future. You know when investors design and and apply policies, practices, or rules that appear to be neutral but yet result in disproportionate impact on communities, you know, we are inadvertently promoting, you know, biased systems. So, you know, we seek to safeguard and grow the money entrusted to us by the people of Illinois while promoting equal opportunity, which means equity, diversion, and inclusion, you know, this whole notion of the American dream. It means efficiency. Uh, uh, not just in terms of an investment return, but also a financial return. And and there's a difference because we're not just talking about the money that we invest in the marketplace, which we certainly count uh, as well, but also the financial return that we're receiving by uh, enacting a, a number of different tools for the residents of Illinois. I often tell my team to think big as well. We, you know, want to tackle the biggest problems facing Illinois, the nation, and even around the the world. So our teams are encouraged to be creative and to think outside the box. The and and it's also about collaboration. You know, we realize that in order to overcome immense challenges, whether it be climate change or systemic racism, we need to partner with the best and the brightest uh, outside the Treasury. Uh, and that means partnering with lawmakers. It means partnering with other government agencies, not for profits and service providers, uh, whether that be whether they are focused locally, uh, statewide, regionally, nationally or even internationally. And and so uh, and, but I would also be remiss if I did not say that, uh, you know, the treasurer as kind of the CEO of the Illinois State Treasury sets the tone. All this is possible because of his leadership and empowerment uh, of not only myself but many of those who work uh, towards accomplishing, uh, you know, the the vision that we have set out.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering if another state was thinking about legislating in the way that Illinois has through the Sustainable Investing Act. How would you describe the push-pull dynamic? You know, of that debate. Was it hotly debated? Was there a lot of consensus?
1: Yeah. So, well, first I would tell you uh, that if we were the first state to pass this type of legislation. That ultimately provides a framework for sustainable investment. since then, we've had a number of other states uh, approach us uh, asking us for a copy or a template of our uh, of our statute uh, and, and as well as a number of follows to really understand how we've been able to implement it. So I would hope uh, that a number of other states continue. Uh, down this path because what we sought to do was to institutionalize the process instead of it being uh, memorialized within an investment policy statement, which is subject to changes in investment staff, but also uh, It's subject to changes in administrations. So it makes it a political type of of structure depending on the both administration and the investment staff and what we sought to do is is to create uh, institutionalization that was based around materiality and was based around relevance, but also provided a level of flexibility for the investment staff at other at public funds within the state of Illinois to uh, implement it and apply it in a way that made sense based on their own uh, uh, individualized uh, philosophy and then their own individualized use of investment managers. I wish I could tell you that it was uh, you know unanimous, but that's the beauty of democracy is we were able to take in Many of the ideas, many of the suggestions, many of the uh, questions that were brought up in, in the discussions, whether they were in committee rooms or even outside of committee rooms, as to how to best optimize, you know, the sustainable investment law, and it is a re- and the current law as it stands is a reflection of the, many of those conversations. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this last thing, which for me was one of the most interesting uh, outcomes is how people view sustainability. And what I mean by that is, if you call uh, this type of investment philosophy uh, philosophy ESG, it it would uh, conjure certain type of response. If you called it sustainability, it would conjure a different type of response. Same, in, in my opinion, same philosophy, same structures, but how uh, you called it uh, conjured different type of reactions. Secondly, uh, the, if you called it, you know, if you provided, if you uh, spoke, say, in very technical terms and, talk about, and talked about sustainability and materiality and relevance, people are like, we don't know what this exactly is. But if you broke it down and talked about, uh, you know, the impact of soil erosions on, say, the on the cost of agricultural products, or you talked about, uh, say, st- uh, stranded uh, oil assets in the Gulf of Mexico, and it and what it would do to the price of oil, of oil refineries, or in this case, the cost of refining oil, and therefore then the cost of, say, a oil company. Or you talked about rising sea waters and the impact on insurance companies. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is communications is key and pivotal in uh, helping you know the masses or helping communities or helping legislators understand the importance of sustainability and its impact on investment returns overall
0: so given you know the, the work around this framework the fact that you were clearly an early adopter What do you think now about the recent Department of Labor proposed rules that have come out, which would seem to say that the investment returns from ESG are not material enough to offset the associated costs on two counts, one for ESG funds and most recently for proxy voting intentions around issues that are related to sustainability factors. I guess what I'm saying is As a CIO who spent a lot of time and who clearly cares about this, how do you reconcile, you know, almost antipodal kind of views with what Illinois has done and what the DOL is proposing? And frankly, speaking from London and being very intimately involved in what the European Commission is doing around the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, again, that's sort of a similar collision course in terms of opposing views.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. You know, the new DOL proposed guidelines and similar efforts at the Securities Exchange Commission to curtail shareholder rights represent a backlash to the riding tide. And, uh, and so, so it's, these are concerted efforts, whether it's at the D, uh, whether it's at the DOL and the inclusion of ESG factors, or the efforts at the SEC around shareholder rights represent this this backlash, uh, which from my perspective is coming uh, from very concentrated parts you know corporate America. you know things are changing. more and more practitioners in the investment space are realizing that sustainability and ESG factors are not only demanded by their customers and constituents but more importantly, they are clearly material and relevant to in- investment performance. Whether, you know, and, and there's a case study examples, whether it be BlackRock on climate change or State Street on board diversity. For me, this is the old guard that is fighting back against this rising tide because they want to maintain their hold on corporate power. They don't want shareholders meddling in their affairs, telling them to change their approach to governance and to risk management. But the change, it's here and it's here to stay. Investors are demanding higher levels of accountability, transparency, and sustainability. And this demand will foster improved investment management and performance. It's a natural evolution of the space. You know, investing means making choices. And so for us at the Office of the Illinois State Treasury, it means choosing investments that are risk-appropriate, that are high-performing, and that meet or exceed the benchmark. By becoming the first ever Treasury uh, signatory in the U.S. to the principles of responsible investment, it reflected our commitment to sustainability, to inclusion, and to sound corporate governance, given that these factors do indeed boost investment returns, mitigate risk, and strengthen the economic well-being of Illinois citizens and the institutions that we work for or that we seek to represent. And so... When we, so I say all that to to say that we know that to fulfill our fiduciary duty and maximize investment returns, we need to focus on more than just short-term gains and traditional indicators. Additional risk and value added factors that have a material and relevant financial impact on the safety and performance of our investments need to be integrated into the decision-making process. These material factors can uh, include environmental issues, social capital, human capital, business model and innovation, and leadership and governance factors. And there's a countless number of studies that clearly demonstrate that companies with sustainable policies are lower risk investments and frequently provide collateral benefits to investors. So not only is it is sustainable investing good for the community, it is good for business. So To put it another way, sustainable investing aligns with our core fiduciary responsibilities, and we endeavor to take uh, those investment standards to a new level, one that continues to recognize uh, the impact of environmental, social, human capital, business model, and other practices uh, that do it in a way that uh, produce safer, more innovative, better performing uh, companies.
0: So I do want to note that the DOL's proposed rules directly impact corporate pension plans. But but I'm curious, to what degree, if at all, do you think these proposed rules cast a shadow over the way that public pension funds approach ESG considerations? In other words, what do you think the implications are for public funds?
1: Indeed, it does cast a shadow. The DOL's proposed rules would apply to private retirement plans, or commonly known as ERISA plans, whether they are defined benefit, also known as pension plans, or defined contribution plans, also known as like 401k plans. My office routinely votes on proxy, proxy ballot items. And as an active proponent of shareholder resolutions designed to serve the mutual interests of both share owners and corporate managers. These investment activities are critical in our efforts to provide the highest level of investment stewardship and financial value to our beneficiaries and participants you know in 2019 alone we voted on about 25,000 individual ballot items and nearly 3,000 annual uh, shareholder meetings as a side note in the and in the interest of transparency all of our proxy voting decisions are posted online for our beneficiaries and portfolio companies to review now with that said it has been a long recognized you know notion that proxy voting and shareholder resolutions constitute critically important investment protections uh, providing a cost-effective voluntary market-based means to maintain a system of accountability among shareholders corporate managers and corporate boards not only do these activities help protect investors and their investments but they also assist in two critical ways number one They help maintain fairness, order, and efficiency in critically important corporate governance matters. And two, they help facilitate an efficient capital formation process by enhancing corporate managerial accountability and company performance. And for those of you that are not familiar with the proposed uh, DOL rules, it would attempt to limit corporate retirement plans from engaging in proxy voting activities unless it meets, you know, the fo- one of the following three kind of thresholds. You know, number one, it's a policy of generally voting proxies in accordance with the voting recommendations of corporate management. This is not in the fiduciary interest of plan participants. This is about corporate power. When making recommendations, uh, corporate directors and companies are not acting as ERISA fiduciaries. ERISA plans are subject to the duty of loyalty to plan participants and voting in accordance with management might violate that duty. Or the second threshold, which is a, a policy to vote only on particular types of proposals such as corporate mergers and acquisitions, share buybacks, stock issuances and proxy contests, for example. This is about reducing our investor and shareholder voice to a more ministerial role. Those related to governance issues such as director elections and executive executive compensation, they make up the majority of governance issues, are an important and are an important method by which investors can voice their displeasure or support of company policies, practices, and risk management practices. This also applies to shareholder proposals. As such, uh, it is our belief that this restriction will effectively prohibit funds from voting on a wide array of proxy items that are material and relevant to fiduciaries. And then the last threshold, it's it's a policy of refraining from voting unless the plan holds a concentrated position in a company relative to the size of the plan's overall portfolio or relative to the plan's percentage of ownership in the company. The suggested cap in both measures is 5%. And so this silences and disenfranchises the voices of diversified investors to communicate their concerns and effectively execute their fiduciary duty. This is about those in corporate power extracting the value of a company at the expense of the small investors. You know, altogether, these three premises of permitted proxy voting activities is completely ludicrous. The proposed rules and questions would radically impair ERISA funds from acting in the best interest of beneficiaries and plan plan participants. Restricting the ability of investors to cast informed proxy votes on crucial governance and business decisions will undoubtedly weaken investor protections that have proven indispensable in strengthening corporate governance, improving business um, performance, and protecting shareholder value. Uh, And and so to conclude on that note, it's the adverse impact of this deficit will reverberate across the market, impacting both ERISA-covered and non-ERISA-covered funds. If passed, the new rule will weaken the process that contributes to market efficiencies and effective risk management and the creation of long-term shareholder value across a wide array of industries and sectors. And in doing so, it will undermine a well-established system of value creation for investors, for companies, and the U.S. equity market.
0: Now, I don't mean to sound naive by asking this, but I am curious if you see any silver lining in the DOL's controversial proposal. There's already a significant amount of disagreement around what sustainability factors and ESG represent. We've talked about that. So could the DOL's ruling end up actually being useful? Could it actually drive more rigorous research and ultimately convergence around what we think of in terms of sustainability?
1: It could, but it won't. This is intended to hamper, not promote. You know, the proposed change represents a unnecessary and unprecedented intrusion on the ability of fiduciaries to act in the best interest of their plan participants and beneficiaries. For over three decades, uh, ERISA-covered plans have recognized that proxy votes constitute plan assets, and ERISA plans manage those assets in accordance to their fiduciary responsibilities proxy voting helps fiduciaries manage communicate and establish accountability for the oversight of these material investment risks including environmental social and governance risks that impact the long-term value of our investment positions the proposed rule would impose cost burdens and effectively dissuade Uh, uh, ERISA fiduciaries from exercising proxy voting rights that assist in the management of material risk exposures. Now, the DOL points to the SEC's recent rulemaking on shareholder proposals and proxy voting to mischaracterize voting as a, you know, the time-consuming and costly activity, which for us and for many others is we know that this is factually incorrect. First, proxy advisor firms serve the market by keeping costs low while consolidating research for broad swaths of the market. Second, the DOL has previously acknowledged in their previous communications that the exercise of proxy voting rights and other shareholder rights does not impose significant costs on plans. They instead are now contending that voting uh, costs sometimes, uh, sometimes exceed the resulting benefits as evidence By the recent increase in the number of environmental and social uh, shareholder proposals that have been introduced and they also contend that sustainability investment factors do not add financial value and we disagree uh vehemently on both points shareholder proposals represent a minority of items on a proxy value in fact i think the last number that i saw they make up less than two percent of all proxy votes And perhaps more importantly, the empirical research on sustainability investment factors show that these matters are material to investors and companies that manage these factors well have higher long-term returns than their peers. As such, studies demonstrate that approximately 70 to 75 percent of global investors uh, take ESG issues into account in their investment analysis and decision making. And furthermore, a you know, the nonpartisan uh, uh, U.S. Government Accountability Office, I believe it was in July, they issued a report that's, that noted that the majority of institutional investors agree that issues of ESG and sustainability have a large impact on the long-term performance, and they actively have sought to um, to incorporate this information to better understand the risk to their investments. So it is not merely that a few investors are taking note of ESG, of ESG risk. There is widespread recognition of the materiality of these, that, that these factors play in a company's performance. So accordingly, proxy voting then represents critically important mechanism for management uh, for, uh, to understand and control for these risk exposures. And, you know, the DOL, the DOL has also noted that these shareholder proposals uh, increasingly call for disclosure, risk, man- risk assessment, and oversight. And so as a fiduciary, it is important and vital to have access to the total mix of information in order to be educated on evolving factors that drive performance. Shareholder proposals often serve that purpose of alerting investors to shortfalls in disclosure and shortfalls in risk management and are therefore vitally important. So, in totality, given the market benefits, uh, the operability, the, and the cost effectiveness of the current system for voting on corporate and shareholder items, it is extremely important that any new regulation that will hamper this system be rigorously scrutinized. The proposed rule institutes a new economic analysis um, and this requirement to permit proxy voting by ERISA funds only if they meet certain standards uh, is not based on facts. Uh, and so recognizing that this is a costly and burdensome requirement, um, you know, the uh, the DOL has now allowed a, one of these three permitted practices, none of which are acceptable in the fulfillment of fiduciary responsibilities. And plainly speaking, it's just absurd.
0: What do you think the DOL's moves say about the story of the U.S. with regard to sustainable investing. There are, there are these kind of theories about why the U.S. Is, has been a laggard. And I'm wondering, to what degree do you think the DOL reveals something around that? The two, and I, and I do want to test two theories, the most compelling theories that I've heard to, that, that try to explain this. The first is this electoral the theory: the fact that many public pension funds or treasury offices have officials that are elected over a four-year term, and so there's a sort of misalignment between the long term and the shorter electoral cycle. So these people are sort of managing returns for the short term. But the most compelling one that I've heard is the fact that when you look at uh, pension funds and funding ratios around the world, you typically find them at 80 to 100%. Um, in some cases, frankly, it's over 100%. But the U.S. kind of chronically is around 66%. And I, and I do wonder what does that do in terms of narrowing the definition of fiduciary duty into something that is very near term and very rigidly economic?
1: There is some level. Of uh, you know credit that I would point to, uh, you know the pension plan funding ratios, or uh, you know kind of the whims of our political structures. But I think there's also uh, you know lots of the evidence that points to financial incentives. Uh, if we, if we as shareholders, uh, ultimately are providing the authority to our you know elected representatives, in this case, the board of directors. Uh, to provide financial incentives for the executive team, whether that be the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the CTO, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and are providing them with you know, pure short-term uh, uh, investment uh, or financial incentives that are, say, under five years. Ultimately, the decisions that that executive team is going to make is going to be reflected by this financial incentives that they are being provided. If we instead provide financial incentives that is inclusive of short-term, because ultimately there needs to be a uh, the uh, the incentives to be able to provide uh, economic compensation. Uh, ultimately, not only to uh, to survive but also to uh, be able to, uh, to balance it out with the long-term uh, financial incentives which is and often even when there are stock options that are created for many of these management and executive teams too often even when when uh, uh, entities or in this case corporate entities say they have included long-term uh, stock options that do not vest. usually you know the norm that we're seeing is four to seven years and so uh, which is better than say the one to two years that we're seeing. But if we're trying to truly create uh long term impact, we need to be able to tie the financial incentives uh to longer uh, uh tenures uh and longer vesting periods uh to be able to invest and to be able to build a corporation that is uh that it provides value uh for Not only the shareholders, but for society in the, you know, in in a period of 10, 15, and 20 years. Now that, uh, so I think that is equally important, uh, in the discussion that we're having. Now, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention just a couple of very small items is that, that given the uh, the research uh, that is changing on materiality and relevance, given the prevalence of uh, uh, frameworks, both international frameworks like the GRI or U.S.-based frameworks like SASB, changing investor preferences, especially among millennials and Generation uh, Z. Uh, Will continue to influence, uh, you know, the progress, the progression of this uh, uh, process. But ultimately, the regulatory framework is behind in the U.S. And future re- uh, regulators, regulators will likely require more disclosure on ESG topics, and that will prompt more robust governance and management practices overall.
0: That's a great segue because I was going to ask how. As a CIO, your own allocation process has changed over the last couple of years as the Treasury Office's approach to sustainability has evolved itself. And I mean this in two respects. First, how do you continue to orient your managers towards long-termism and sustainable factors? And second, how do you think about diversification, which is generally thought of as the only free lunch in investing? It seems that As you start adding more sustainability factors, and I don't mean strictly exclusions, it potentially carries some big implications on your investable universe and your ability to diversify. And to be clear, that actually could be a good thing in terms of reducing climate risk and carbon exposure across the portfolio.
1: Well, first, we want to understand an investment manager's investment thesis, their investment strategy and their investment process this will dictate whether a manager is greenwashing or or substantively integrating issues such as population growth resource constraints urbanization technological innovation equity diversity and inclusion and climate change for example we do this by evaluating their actions on items such as follow-on meetings with corporate management uh, reviewing their risk return attribution analysis on material sustainable topics on you know evaluating the examples of their buy sell decisions or their track record of proxy voting on certain prominent issues of substance ultimately we don't want this to be about third-party ratings and research, but rather an intentional and thought-out investment process. Now, second, and with that in mind, once we have a firm grasp of the asset manager's policies and processes, and it's a manager we want to do business with and subsequently do, we monitor and follow up on a recurring basis to ensure their actions are in alignment with their purported investment strategy. Ultimately, we are investing for the next 20 to 25 years. We want to assess their churn, or in other words, how often they're buying and selling their investment positions, their shelf life, the tenure of their investment ownership, their deliberate actions to enhance the value of their investments, such as alignment to the Paris Agreement, or urging companies to disclose matters of importance such as human capital and strategy. And we want to assess their performance track record over an extended period of time. So, lastly, you know, on diversification, there is no one size you know, fits all approach as we uh, typically encounter in much of our work. You know, our work in factoring economic and financial risk is continuously evolving. Investors increasingly face compounding systemic risks that challenge their ability, or in this case our ability, to deliver long-term returns for our beneficiaries and participants. For example, take climate risk. Climate-related risk is pervasive and systemic. Global warming is currently at this moment ravaging the state of California and is driving the intensity of their wildfires. And it will get worse, not just in California but elsewhere. This presents material risk to nearly every industry. This type of systemic risk cannot be diversified away. As a result, investors must employ a range of strategies to manage climate risk. This includes balancing exposures through sector allocation, focusing exposures on best-in-class securities, and actively engaging individual companies on key climate-related factors to encourage enhanced disclosure and performance. Ultimately, all these factors are weighed based on their relevance and importance, and then they are balanced with other key investment considerations, such as investment fees, the strength of the portfolio management team, the quality of the fund's long-term investment performance, the overall investment strategy, their proximity to the benchmark, uh, volatility measures, and a number of other investment factors. That's how we've come to our conclusion to date and look forward to evolve as the marketplace continues to evolve as well.
0: So I want to turn it back to the Illinois State Treasury and, and sort of talk about the initiatives that the Treasury has been sort of pushing before and even post the pandemic. There have been incredibly progressive and financially inclusive programs focused on retirement, college savings, entrepreneurship, and, and, and in particular, diversity. Yeah, I, I note in particular, there's sort of a, this focus around rates on a couple of those programs, i.e. being able to offer low-rate bridge loans to small and, and medium uh, uh, businesses, um, as well as really trying to drive down rates around student loans. That's all fantastic. I guess what I'm wondering is, as we pa- travel through the pandemic, how have these programs changed, expanded? What's new? How has the Office of the Treasury reacted?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. You know, the impact of COVID-19 has been severe and widespread. And not only has it uh, uh, not only is it a public health crisis in itself, uh, but it has exposed issues around race and ethnicity, around age and class inequality within many of our communities. Uh, Our economy and the people within it are not immune to these challenges. Just as the pandemic had exposed the inequities in our civic society, it is also revealing deep risks within our local economy. Uh, There is a social contract between the Treasury and the residents or the people of Illinois. For us, It is about being able to provide, being able to implement, being able to create, design, and ultimately support any number of platforms that either have been shown and demonstrated to to, uh, provide impact, or coming up with innovative new ways of how we can uh, ultimately, provide tools, provide support, and provide the necessary—we usually call it—the uh, uh, necessary uh, slate to be able to empower communities to uh, to be able to move forward. And so, this has been illustrated by any number of our platforms. Uh, now, those are just some of the initiatives that uh, we are, uh, you know, viewing. But I think you had mentioned some of these other components that we're continuing to work on, it has accelerated uh, some of the work that we've done or that we are we have been working on around entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, as we move forward, we continue to push towards increasing economic equity to broad swaths of Chicago, not just those parts of the city known for their entrepreneurial bona fides. You know, decades of disinvestment and undercapitalization has left entire communities vulnerable and marginalized. Entrepreneurship is a crucial tool in building wealth and, help, and helping to close the longstanding wealth gaps. That is why we continue to have initiatives, including one that we have in the pipeline, that will, that will invest in marginalized and underrepresented communities in Chicago that focuses on entrepreneurship. And I would just mention this last piece. We have recently pivoted to advancing board diversity. What we mean by that is here at as I here in the US, as I alluded to earlier, corporations don't own themselves. Shareholders are represented by the board directors. And we have noticed that among corporate board directors, the individuals that are not only represent shareholders but ultimately put uh, into play the strategy and hire the management team for many corporations are very monotonous and do not necessarily represent uh, communities throughout the United States. And so we have taken an initiative to really advance board diversity and, and with a very specific focus on race and ethnicity, especially in light of the events that have happened over the last several months. And we want to, uh, to be very intentional on approaching uh, the the companies that comprise the Russell 3000 and begin to uh, request that race and ethnicity be disclosed uh, just like uh, gender, age, and any number of other characteristics are disclosed for board directors in order to allow institutional investors or just investors overall To understand the composition of those boardrooms because we do believe that those compositions ultimately would lead not only to better strategy, but better risk adjusted financial returns in the long term.
0: You recently gave a great TEDx which Incidentally, I recommend anyone in the audience to to listen to it. it Was you you made it in Wrigley Field to effectively an empty stadium, which which was a powerful and I kind of I found it a very sobering statement about the pandemic and and the effects um, that we're living in right now. And I I think what really struck me was your empathy for many of your constituents. and And I'm wondering, as you have sort of traveled through this, um, what has been the biggest lesson learned? in terms of improving it might be access to capital for underserved communities, um, and, and trying to kind of bridge or, or fill in that, um, inequality gap.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm usually reminded of food deserts when thinking about this, uh, you know, question, uh, for those that are not, uh, familiar with food deserts it's essentially uh, a phrase that defines or describes neighborhoods that do not have access to healthy uh, you know foods vegetables fruits fresh meats uh, uh, etc uh, well just like there is there are food deserts there's also banking deserts that means that there are communities and entire neighborhoods That have no or minimal access to banking services, inclusive of access to capital. You know, many of these communities have been deemed not profitable or not profitable enough. Uh, And small businesses and underserved areas that don't have uh, uh, access to capital cannot serve as the, you know, the powerful economic engines generating jobs and wealth. Where resources scars that they would otherwise be able to. And and given that uh, that entrepreneurship has continued to show and illustrate that it is a potent tool in closing the wealth gaps, uh, for us access to capital is such an important facet of the work that we're trying to do here in Illinois. And as COVID-19 threatens to permanently shutter small businesses In in an ongoing uh, way as the pandemic continues to persist, it is important to consider and adopt policies that promote uh, not just, uh, you know, traditional sources of capital, but alternative and flexible sources of capital from nimble institutions that have a track record of investing in some of these disinvested communities, whether it be Community development corporations or community development financial institutions or community banks or community credit unions and micro lenders, to name a few. You know, if there is a positive consequence resulting from the pandemic, it is accelerated shift to stakeholder capitalism and away from a company's singular emphasis on shareholder profits. The importance of employees, customers, suppliers, and the communities in which they operate has brought the need for stakeholder capitalism into sharper focus because when companies do things like increase healthcare benefits or increase pay for workers on the front lines or lower executive compensation to help avert layoffs or take additional steps to protect workers, they benefit from a more engaged and productive workforce, a more loyal customer base and a stronger reputational brand. And on the other end of the spectrum, institutional investors also have a pivotal role to play, though. We should be constantly evaluating the diversity of our management team and staff, leveraging investment stewardship to promote uh, race and ethnic uh, equity. We need to vote proxy statements in alignment with fair and equitable corporate practices and invest with investment funds that are led by diverse uh, 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 people, whether it be people of color or women, we need to invest in diverse led businesses, addressing issues in communities of color, not just those that serve mainstream communities and to hire firms with a proven track record of equity, diversity, and inclusion.
0: So last question, there are a lot of students that listen to this podcast uh, that make up the audience. Um, and I'm often asked what advice I'd give them as they you know, pursue some sort of vocation in sustainable finance. And I want to flip that question to you, just given the fact that you've spent so much time at the intersection of public service and finance slash sustainable finance. So what what's guided you uh, through these areas over the time? What advice would you lend?
1: So as you heard at the beginning of this podcast, you have a little bit of insight and perspective into what drives me for public service. Uh, This whole notion of serving others instead of just serving self. I often uh, uh, think about the change that we are trying to make on a daily, uh, weekly, monthly, or even annual basis, and it comes in two ways. It's not just about creating impact for the people of today, but it's also creating impact and setting a world for the people of tomorrow, for those generations that will follow us. Uh, and to ensure that there is uh, a world, not only for the generations that follow us, but for the next 10 generations. You know, what we do now will dictate the future. And the the students who are in the classrooms today will ultimately dictate how uh, they themselves interface with the society of tomorrow. I am a professor at Northwestern University, uh, and I'm also a member of the Impact and Sustainable Finance Faculty Consortium. And you know, we are continuing to see a rise uh, in uh, not only interest but the level of curriculum that is being uh, uh, say, uh, that is being uh, provided to students around the world. So that gives me hope, because similar to the periods following the Great Recession. The current economic recovery is serving the well-to-do and the wealthy. Although the U.S. has enacted $3 trillion in government stimulus and $3 trillion in monetary stimulus alone, this is not even counting the stimulus that has been provided by the European Union as well uh, as uh, other countries around the world, the economic recovery to date has benefited those with capital. The glaring disconnect between the real economy of working people with jobs and bills to pay and the investor economy, inclusive of myself, of investors with stocks and bonds is one of the starkest disparities in in modern times. So students, we must be the action that we seek. We must use this crisis to think bigger. We must recapitalize underserved enterprises with low cost, flexible sources of capital We must reinforce our local economies by building structures to support them and employ strategies that promote sustainable economic activity. We must foster innovative strategies such as worker-owned cooperatives, complementary currencies, stakeholder capitalism, to create the necessary foundations to expand the economic recovery to uh, broad aspects of our society. And we need you more than ever now to come into these components of industry or sectors in order to continue to move us forward. Because if not now, then when? If not us, then who? And if not here, then where?
0: Well, that's great. That is a uh, an incredibly inspiring message to finish on. Um, so thanks. So look, it's been fascinating not only to hear about your path in public service, but how the Illinois State Treasury is embedding sustainability factors, what the implications could be for the upcoming Department of Labor rule proposals around ESG, and why it's absolutely vital for financial institutions to improve access to capital to address the disproportional socioeconomic impacts of the pandemic today. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Rodrigo Garcia, Deputy State Treasurer and Chief Investment Officer for the Illinois State Treasury. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Rodrigo. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell.com at man.com.